And please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes 8. We're doing a study of this entire book. As many of you know, if you're new, welcome. Uh, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've entitled the whole study in Ecclesiastes, Life That Cannot Be Grasped. And what that means is a certain satisfaction from this life that actually can't be grasped. So there is not final and ultimate satisfaction that comes from pursuing the things of this world. As a matter of fact, Solomon tells us over and over again that life, true life, is to be found in revering God for who He is, taking Him at His word, trusting Him, and enjoying all the gifts that He gives us as we go through this difficult world. So life that cannot be grasped. Today we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes 8, and I believe that the last verse we looked at last week actually um, is a good kind of bridge. I think it was a very appropriate final uh, verse for the passage that we were in last week. I also think it's a good intro into this week's passage. So I'll start by reading chapter 729, and then we'll read through the end of uh, chapter 8. So follow along as I read. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. I've entitled this message, Wisdom to Grab Onto in a Topsy-Turvy World. 
wisdom to grab onto in a topsy-turvy world. If you are typing out these notes, just know that when you type in turvy, autocorrect will change it to turkey or turbo. It's just maybe to help you out. I had that experience a number of times this week. So, wisdom to grab onto in a topsy-turvy world. I am not a big fan of amusement park rides that have huge drops. My family knows this. Um, But sometimes in moments of weakness, if we're at one of those places, something will come over me, maybe the drunkenness of cotton candy, I don't know what it is, something will come over me and I will get in line for a ride like that. Well, a number of years ago we were going on a ride like that and I I think previously when I went on that ride I said I'd never do it again, but alas, here I was in the line with my family. Um, going on a ride like this, and it's one of those rides that goes way up, way, way, way up, and then drops you down in stages. And if that wasn't bad enough, I had forgotten that once you get on this ride and you're strapped in, you're strapped on with a waist belt, there is literally nothing to grab onto. Now, just put yourself in that situation. The drop's bad enough, but at least sometimes on those rides you have something to hold onto and to tighten up, There's nothing to hold on to. You just kind of go down. So in that moment, I would have loved, obviously, to have rethought my decision. But once I was on there, I would have loved to have had something to hold on to. It would have helped a little bit more. And I was thinking about that illustration when I thought about this passage all through the week. I thought, this life is so chaotic. You look at government, and there's chaos and hardship. And you think, where do I go for some hope? Where do I go to hold on to something, some sort of promise that things will be better? Or you just look at the wickedness of the world and people seemingly getting away with it for so long. What do you hold on to? What do you say to yourself when you watch children abused, when you watch people get away with sin, when you see people glorify sin and call righteousness unrighteousness. What do you hold on to? What do you hold on to when you don't know the future? What do you hold on to when you're sick and don't have answers? What do you hold on to when you don't know what this or that person may do in your life and how your life will turn out? What do you hold on to? And so it's not an amusement park ride. It's a chaotic life. But in this passage, Solomon gives us some truths to grab onto some wise pieces of advice to hold on to. And these are very meaningful. Remember, behind Solomon is the divine pen. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired Solomon to write. So the Holy Spirit today is giving us truths to hold on to when we look at a chaotic world, an upside-down world, a government that is upside-down, wicked people who are upside-down and getting away with it, and even a future that seems to not make sense, or even a present that doesn't seem to make sense to us. Solomon gives us three pieces of wisdom to grab onto for in a topsy-turvy world. Let's look at the first one. First piece of wisdom Solomon gives us, and this is so interesting. Grab opportunities to bring wisdom to sinful governments. Grab opportunities to bring wisdom to sinful governments. So as Solomon looks around the world and he sees chaos, he sees human sinfulness. Oftentimes, as you've seen in Ecclesiastes, he looks at governing authorities and says, there are problems here. 
Now, as we said before, it doesn't make him an anarchist. doesn't make him say, do away with all government. He understands that all government from all time has been imperfect. But he notices in government their sinfulness as well, not just in everyday people, but in leaders, in governors, in officials, in kings. There is a sinfulness. And Solomon's advice here is to not fall off to different extremes. On one extreme, we as the people of God are going to fix government. It's always going to work the right way, and our hope is found in just getting the right people in government. That's not the Bible's hope. But it's also not the opposite extreme. Well, all government's sinful, our government's sinful, so who cares what happens? No, that's not the extreme the Bible calls us to as well. There's actually a middle way. Seek to do good under the authorities that you live under. Seek to bring righteousness. Pray for them, Paul tells Timothy. Obey them, Paul tells the Roman believers. Peter tells the Roman believers under the emperor Nero. Obey them. Pray for them. Submit to them. And in a number of places, bring wisdom to them whenever you're put in that situation. Now, this isn't the first time that we see Solomon thinking back to situations like Joseph and Daniel. Joseph and Daniel, people of God, thrust into leadership and advisory role under wicked governments. And they don't say, I'm not helping this king. They seek to bring whatever wisdom they can to help the king in the way of righteousness. That's what they seek to do. And Solomon gives us wisdom. As a king himself, he gives us wisdom and says the same thing to the readers of this book. Grab opportunities to bring wisdom to sinful governments. Whenever that may happen, whenever you may have an ability to influence something, bring godly wisdom to politics, to government situations. The world is upside down, and instead of throwing your hands up and escaping, there are sometimes ways to bring wisdom to political affairs in this life. Solomon, again, as I said, seems to reflect on the life of Joseph and Daniel like he does in chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, chapter 8. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Now, what does that remind you of? Interpreting dreams. A wise person interpreting something. Daniel, Joseph, so the people of God, those two men of God, had been given wisdom by God to interpret something for a king. So it's what Solomon seems to be getting at here. Who's like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. Most people think that the his is speaking of the king. A man's wisdom makes the king's face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. A person's wisdom, a person's godly wisdom, Daniel, Joseph, helps people like Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar. It, their face is sunk. They don't know the interpretation of a dream. They don't know what to do here. They find that there's a wise person that could speak into this. The wise man comes, speaks into it, tells them the interpretation of the dream, and the king's face is lifted up and it starts to shine. It appreciates the wisdom. That's what's happening here. 
Now Solomon's about to acknowledge that these governments that you and I might be able to serve with our wisdom are corrupt themselves. So he gives us some wisdom in how to bring wisdom to corrupt governments. Gives us some understanding as to what we're to engage in, what we're not to engage in. Look at verse 2. I say, keep the king's command. Which command? Whatever commands the king gives. Solomon's saying, keep the king's commands. Be an obedient subject of the king. As Peter might say, obey Nero. He actually says that. Submit to the governing authorities. Paul says that in Romans 13. Obey. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. God's commitment to him. God's calling, if you will, to him. Now, what is God's commitment to the king? What is God's calling for the king? Well, let's turn to Romans 13. Keep your hand in or finger in Ecclesiastes 8. Let's look at Romans 13, verse 1. Paul writing to believers who are under a secular king's authority. Okay, I know you're turning there, but just hear what I said. Paul's writing to believers, Christians, Christ followers, under a secular king's earthly authority. Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by a fraudulent election. Nope. By dumb people who don't know how to vote the right way. Nope. Those who exist in their power, in their office, have been instituted by God. This is a common reframe, as I told you, in the Scriptures. Peter tells the Christians who are under Nero's rule, has there ever been a ruler more wicked than Nero? Maybe just a handful. He's at least tied for first. Under that government, Peter acknowledges that God's hand is in this. God knows what he's doing. So you be subject to them. Be submissive to them. What about if they ask you to sin? That's an easy one. Don't do it. But that's not what this passage is talking about. The heartbeat is to obey. Unless there's a requirement that requires them us to obey them and disobey God. Sorry, we obey God. But the regular pattern, the regular way of life is being subject to the king. Why? Because God has placed them there. Verse 3. Be not hasty to go from his presence. I think that in the context, Solomon's talking about going away from his presence in some rebellious way. And the reason I believe that is because the next sentences that come. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, some, some evil cause against a king, for he does whatever he pleases. So, so don't rush out of the king's presence and engage in some evil cause against the king because you might lose your head. He does whatever he pleases. He's got some authority here. For the word of the king is supreme, and who might say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. Whoever keeps the king's command will know no evil thing. 
and the wise in heart will know the proper time in the just way. There's a way to be wise and to bring wisdom when you're in the place of or when you're in the, you have the audience of a king or a ruler or a leader. Even if they're secular, even if they are God-haters, there's a way to bring wisdom. There's a way to submit to them unless they call you to unrighteousness. There's a way to do that which brings blessing to that leader and maybe even the people, the rest of the people that they lead. Wisdom is to be used here. Again, you see that in Daniel and Joseph. It's not that someone said, hey, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar wants you as an advisor. He said, no way. I'm a lover of God. I'm committed to God. There's no way I'm going to help this king and help this place that I'm in. I'm in exile. This is even my hometown. This is even my home country. No way I'm going to help him. No, that's not what he does. He actually seeks to help the king through righteousness, which might then affect the righteousness of Babylon. Same with Joseph. Joseph is actually used in Egypt to bring about food and feeding for seven years in, in the famine that they experienced. Joseph's wisdom to secular King Pharaoh actually goes and is a blessing not only to the Jews in Egypt, but also to the people of Egypt. So grab opportunities to bring wisdom to sinful governments. Be wise about it. Now in verses 6 to 9, Solomon will go from the authority of the king to now the limits on that authority. The king is the one in charge, lowercase c. God himself is in charge of the king and will one day judge the king. The king isn't, control, isn't in control of everything. So in verses 6 to 9, we see that there's limits to the authority of the king. After reading these verses, you realize that we can give wisdom to people in high places but they themselves only have these high places for a time. All kings have term limits. All presidents have term limits. All leaders have term limits. God, no term limits. And He's the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, the president over all presidents, if you will. He's the leader, the ruler, the judge of them all. So while you're under the temporary authority of a king, be wise, bring whatever wisdom you can, leave that in the hands of God, and realize that they only have a certain limited authority for a limited time. Verse 6, if there's a time and a way for everything, so there's a time and a way for every king's rule, there's only a limited amount of time, there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for you can tell him how it will be. What's going to come next? What's going to come after this king is gone? What, what's, going to, what's going to happen? This world's in trouble. This is difficult. What happens next? Certainly the king has some say in what's going on, but notice verse 8, they're limited in their power. Got a lot of power. They can punish you for going after them, but their power is only temporary. Notice verse 8, no man or king has the power to retain the spirit. Now, a king or a dictator can keep people in line, but he can't fix the problem of their spirits. He can't turn their spirits toward him. He can threaten them. He can keep them imprisoned, if you will, which is what this word means, retain. But he can't imprison their spirit. 
the king can keep you in East Berlin and keep you from going to freedom in West Berlin back in the time of the Cold War. The king can do all that, but he can't keep your heart from wanting freedom. He can't make your heart submit to him. The king only has so much power. No man has power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. A king, a leader, can't say, I am such a good leader. I'm going to do this for 200 years. Sorry, you have no control over that. You will die when it's appointed for you to die. King doesn't have control over his own life. King has no control over the day of his death. He can't say when it'll happen. He can't prolong his life if God doesn't want it to happen. Can't do that. So we're seeing the limits of the king. No man has the power to retain a spirit or the power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war. Kings can't just get out of war whenever they want. The Assyrians come to invade. Uh, no thank you. Sorry, you can't do that. If they want to invade, they're going to invade. You can't just get out of war whenever you want. If they want to invade, if they want to come take your territory, if they want to come and threaten you, that's up to God and them. God's sovereign purposes in using them. You can't just exit out of whatever hardship you want, O king. Can't do it. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. If a king is extremely wicked and they think that they are going to succeed through that wickedness, they might do so for a time, but that wickedness will not lead them to ultimate success. They will all fail, they will all be judged. Wickedness will not deliver any wicked king or president or dictator, prime minister, whatever you call them. Wickedness will not deliver them. So the king has a temporary authority from God and you are to seek to do good in that time that you're placed in. But just know that all kings, all rulers have a limited term. It's all up to God. Verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. I've looked at the political ways of nations under the sun. I've seen this kingdom, that kingdom, and I see all of these things. All this I observed when applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. I've seen that this is what it's like when governments hurt the people that they are meant to rule. I see that there's a certain wisdom that can be brought to those situations. I see that there's a certain obedience that's to be brought in this temporary situation, but I also see all of these kings come and go. God's in control. Again, the call for the reader of Ecclesiastes, us, is to grab opportunities to bring wisdom to sinful governments. What are some ways to do that? Praying for them. We have the privilege in this country of choosing them, voting, casting a vote, some of us have the opportunity to speak to them, to speak righteousness to them. Whether they listen or not, that's not our deal, but we could speak into certain situations, writing a letter for this or that just cause, maybe sitting down with one of them to give them the righteous way, righteous advice. We're not people who just wash our hands and say, ah, oh, forget it, this place is going downhill, that, I'm not involved. Sometimes there are ways to speak into these things. It's a good idea for us to pray for those who have influence over 
leaders, right? City council officials, board of supervisors, congressmen and women, senators, presidents, school board officials. We can bring wisdom to the world, and sometimes in God's providence, there's a common grace where that wisdom is heated, and H-E-E-D-E-D, not heated, okay? Sometimes they listen. Sometimes they adopt good public policy. But this is a call for the person of God to try to bring some wisdom to the place where they live. Again, I've been citing a number of places. I want to turn to one place and show you this. Um, It's rather shocking, actually. Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah, as you may know, is the prophet that was to speak to the people of God who were in exile because of their own sin. The Babylonians came and took most of them to Babylon, where the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar ruled. And you would think, and you might be tempted if it was you being dragged to exile. So remember, (laughs) you've been promised by God himself to dwell in this rich land, and he would dwell with you in the temple complex. Jerusalem is not only your home, it's also his home where he dwells with you, and he extends his rule to the rest of the nations. But in his providence, and because of your sin, he's dragged you into this wicked nation. Now, if, if you're being dragged to Babylon, you're literally on the road with other people, maybe chained with them, going off to Babylon, you might say something like, you know what, when I get to this wicked place, I'm not going to help them in any way. I hate what this wicked ruler stands for. I don't care about this place. Let's see what God would tell you. Let's see what God told them. Jeremiah 27, verse 9. Do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. Whoa, that's quite a start. God is telling the people, there are going to be some people who call themselves prophets, pastors, diviners, fortune tellers, and they're going to say, listen, when you get to this God-forsaken place, you do not help them one bit. They're dragging us away from the promised land. You do not help them at all. Do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and, will, and you will perish." But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. If you come and serve the king of Babylon, and he's a wicked king, if you come and seek to do good for that kingdom, I'll bring you back to your land. I'll reward you for that, God is saying. Turn over to chapter 29. Chapter 29. Now we know this famous, this famous verse. Some of you have it on a coffee mug. Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's read that and then we'll read what comes before it. God says this to the people of Israel. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Now he's talking to them 
while they're in exile. They don't feel like he knows the plans he has for them. They don't feel very hopeful and that the future is in their favor. But that's what he says. <clears throat> Let's notice what he says before that. Go to verse 5. He's talking to them now as they're in the Babylonian exile. They're in Babylon. Here's what he says about being in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Okay, and you can read that and say, okay, we'll kind of stick to ourselves, us exiles. We'll make sure that we keep producing, we keep feeding one another. We'll make sure that like in Egypt, like our ancestors, we will thrive even while we're here. <coughs> He's not just saying that though. Notice verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for Babylon. Seek to do good, not just for yourselves, but for Babylon. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So Jeremiah 29 doesn't just tell us you'll be back in Jerusalem after 70 years. It tells us what to do in those 70 years. Thrive as a people, the people of God, and seek to do good for the city that you're in. Isn't there a parallel with us today? We're in exile today. That's why Peter writes to the sojourners, the exiles. We are in exile. This is not our home. You feel that? <laughs> this isn't our home. The new heavens and the new earth are our home. We are citizens of heaven. That's our future. And so what do we do right now? Burn this place down. Nope. Seek to do good to it. Bring wisdom where you can. Pray for it. That's why Paul tells Timothy to pray for kings and emperors, those who, all those who have authority. So we seek to do good. Grab opportunities to bring wisdom to sinful governments. Secondly, second thing to grab onto in a topsy-turvy world, grasp the reality that the wicked will be judged. Why does Solomon need to say this? Because it doesn't seem like they're going to be. All too often, people get away with wickedness. It seems, but they don't. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. What's he saying here? Burial is an honor. To die and be buried is honorable in the scriptures. And he's saying, I've seen the wicked who went in and out of the temple, the holy place, 
and who were lauded even for their wickedness, I've seen them honored in death. It's a problem to Solomon. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, such wicked things. This also is vanity. This isn't satisfying to me. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now, sometimes we read that passage and we point the finger at human government. See, you let, you let guilty people, people who have committed crimes, you let this, this sentence against them be prolonged and it takes years for someone to be punished, they're not going to stop their wickedness. They're going to keep going. And that's true. But here I believe Solomon has in mind the slowness of God to judge. God is long-suffering and patient even with the wicked. And Solomon says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man, mankind, is fully set to do evil. Evil people who don't get caught think they're getting away with it. And they never are. Ever. Verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well, not with them, it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. So the wicked who are getting away with their wickedness, looking around, oh my goodness, God's not judging this. I'm getting away with this. Everything's going to be good. No, no, no. Solomon says, I know that the ones who are going to have it be well with them one day are actually those who revere God. Verse 13, but it will not be well for the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. It will not be well for the wicked. Now, in the moment, the wicked thinks it's well with them. I'm doing this scheme. I'm getting away with this. I'm calling people and scamming them out of thousands of dollars. I'm getting away with this. And Solomon says, it will not be well with them. They can't prolong their days. They do not fear before their God, before God. And then he goes to verses 14, or verse 14, and he talks about how backwards things are, how upside down things are. And he says, listen, righteous people get treated as if they're wicked. And wicked people get treated as if they're righteous. Sounds a lot like Romans 1. People glory in what they should be ashamed of. People, people are wicked and they receive commendation for it. I mean, is not that a description of our culture? And oftentimes the righteous who are doing good things are treated as if they're wicked. How can you believe that? How can you stand for that? You are fill in the blank hateful when actually we're loving. <clears throat> There's a vanity that takes place on earth and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are righteous people, but they get treated as if they've done wicked deeds. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. 
I said, this also is vanity. This also is dissatisfying. I don't like this. This doesn't make sense. This is not fulfilling to me, Solomon says. So what, what do we do about it? Get angry, complain all the time? Let's look at the application, verse 15. And I commend joy. Whoa, <laughs> Solomon, have you watched the news? Do you read the blogs that I read? Do you know what's going on secretly in the halls of government? How in the world can I find joy? But that's what Solomon says to do. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Solomon's saying, this is an upside-down world. The wicked will be judged one day. And while it's upside down, while it's so infuriating, while it's so dissatisfying, I want you to look for the ways that God has still given you enjoyment. Maybe get off the internet for a while and go take a walk with your family. Maybe, maybe stop complaining about all the problems. God knows he will judge and go and eat a good meal. Find joy because God has given you joy. Which would imply that it actually could be worse. But God in his grace, even in times of hardship, has given us things as gifts from his hand to enjoy. Today's lunch, tomorrow's friend, whatever it may be, Solomon says, look for the joy. I know it's upside down. I know it doesn't make sense a lot, but just know this. The wicked will be punished, and there are things to find in this life that are a joy. So grasp the reality that the wicked will be judged. Know that it will happen. They think they're getting away with it, but it doesn't mean that they are. I want to spend just a couple moments, though, going through this, this explanation of God's long-suffering with the wicked. I want you to turn to a couple places. All right, we'll do a little bit of a Bible study here for just about five minutes. Romans 2. Go to Romans 2. So here's what happens. Wicked people do wicked deeds, and because the judgment doesn't happen swiftly, they think they're getting away with it. And so they keep going down the road of wickedness. When in reality, when you're not judged according to how you should be judged, when you're not judged immediately according to how you should be immediately judged, that should lead to a certain awe of God, humility before Him, appreciating His patience. But the wicked presume on His patience and keep going in their wickedness. Notice Romans chapter 2, verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? So God has not judged you yet, and you may be presuming 
taking for granted, acting as if judgment's not coming, you may presuming, be presuming on the riches of His kindness. So why, why has God been patient with the wicked? Right here, because He's kind. You're presuming on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, which looks like patience and forbearance with you, not judging you right away, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, not more sin. I remember when I was first converted, I had this, I had this awe of God's patience because I thought, why did He bear with me for so long? I can't believe He was so patient with me. When God doesn't execute a judgment immediately, it should lead us to patience, not into more sin. But worldly people, sinful people, use that, presume on it, and they go in to more sin. Now, in Ecclesiastes, it tells us that there will be a judgment for the wicked. Let's look at what that judgment will look like. Let's look at the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19. When Christ comes to wage war on the righteous who have sinned against his patience and his kindness. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Someone's coming out of heaven and coming to earth. And he's not coming in a manger. He's coming on a horse because he's a conquering war hero. He's a king who's angry. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. We've been able to take him at his word. He said this was going to happen. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's never wrong about executing a judgment. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He's the king over all kings. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He's got a sword and he's stomping on his enemies like they're grapes. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what it's going to look like when Ecclesiastes 8 verse 13 is fulfilled in real space and time. Nobody will ever get away with their sin and rebellion against God. And it's the grace of God to tell us this right now. It is gracious of Him to give us these passages right now. But if you've believed in Jesus Christ, if you know yourself to be a sinner and know Him to be your Savior and you depend on Him, you've staked your life and your eternity on Him, you will be saved from this. And so I do not want today, because the Bible would not call for this today, 
for any believer to go out of here scared of the second coming of Christ. No believer should be scared of the second coming of Christ. He will come and judge his enemies. He will come and extend mercy to those who have trusted in him. And I want you to see that too. Go to Jude. Right in the shadow of Revelation, go to Jude. Jude also talks about the second coming of Christ, our waiting for him. How does the believer wait for the second coming of Christ? Jude verse 21. Jude 21. This is so good. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Just that phrase right there, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who rebel against God, whether they know it or not, they're waiting for his rod of iron, they're waiting for him to smash them like grapes, they're waiting for him to execute eternal punishment which never ends. What are believers waiting for? His mercy. When He comes, we know that our Lord comes with mercy for us. Why? Because we've believed that He's our Savior. We've believed that we're sinful and don't deserve to be in His presence, but He's been gracious and died for us and rose again for our sakes, and we believe that. And so we know that when He comes, it's not going to be with a scowl and with anger. He's going to come for us and bring mercy. He's going to come for His brothers and sisters and bring them to His Father. Bank on Jude 21. Hold on to Jude 21. Believer, when He comes, you're getting mercy, not judgment. So in this topsy-turvy world, know that the application is you revere God. Revere God for what He's done in Jesus Christ. Revere God for His mercy. Revere God for the fact that you will not be judged one moment for your sin because He's already received the judgment on your behalf. Revere God. And if you're someone who doesn't revere God, you don't trust in the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. You'd rather go your way. You'd rather have what you want. Know that the wicked will never get away with it. There is judgment coming. And I want you to know today that the Savior opens his arms to you. He comes for the wicked, to rescue the wicked, to forgive sinners. Trust in the grace and mercy now and in the future of Jesus Christ. There's a final thing to grab onto in a topsy-turvy world. Verses 16 to 17. Hold on to God's oversight of everything under the sun. Hold on to God's oversight of everything under the sun. Here's what I mean by that. God knows all of the wrongs today. He knows all of the wrongs in the government. He knows all of the wrongs with the wicked who keep 
continuing in their wickedness. He knows all of the wrongs, and he's got an absolute plan. Every single thing fits into his greater purposes. He knows he's in control. We don't, and we're not. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw the work of God. Solomon saying this, I looked around to, to see if we as men and women could find out wisdom that made sense of all of this. If we could make sense of the present, make sense of the future. And what does that cause mankind to be like? What, what do we get when we try to make sense of everything without knowing? Well, we get sleepless nights. How neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. So if you're trying to make sense of what's going on with you right now, if you're trying to make sense of what's going to happen in the future for me, how's this all work out, I need to know right now, you're not going to get a lot of sleep. Verse 17, then I saw the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. We can't know how it all works out. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, I know why this is happening. No, you don't. Yeah, I know why this is happening. No, you don't. Only God knows. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Three times in verse 17, we've been told we cannot find it out. We don't know why it's all happening. We don't know what it leads to. We don't know. It's all in God's capable, wise, sovereign, good hands. That's why we take so much comfort in passages like Romans 8.28, knowing that for His people, it all works out for their good. So in a sense, I don't know how it all works out. But in another sense, I do. It works out well. Well, how? I don't know. I just know it works out well. Think of God's sovereignty in the book of Habakkuk, sovereign over the evil people that are disciplining the people of God. God has a plan. Think of Genesis 50, Joseph sold into slavery. I thought he might be dead. And he meets his brothers at the end of the book. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Think of our book, Ecclesiastes 3. God makes everything beautiful in its time. God knows what he's doing. Everything in its time might not feel beautiful, but it is because he knows the purpose of it. And for his people, you will see one day, Lord, that didn't feel good, but I understand the beauty of it because it was in your hand. You had a purpose here. Think of the cross of Jesus Christ. Didn't feel beautiful, but it was. Jesus dying on the cross, crying out in agony. You would have heard a number of things at the cross. <clears throat> you would have heard him screaming and other people mocking. And you might have said, how in the world is this good? And he made that beautiful, God the Father did in its time. Because of what happened there, you and I are saved from our sin. And we're given the righteousness of Jesus. 
We can trust God for the present and we can trust him in the future. He knows what he's doing. Grab onto that. Hold on to God's oversight of everything under the sun. When we live in an upside-down world, there can be a temptation to question whether God is actually good or not. Some of you may have wondered about that yourself. You know God's good, and all of a sudden this life-altering trial comes in, and you start to, not intellectually, you know, I know God's good, but you feel maybe there's part of this that isn't good. Maybe part of him is actually mean to his children, just a little part, because it kind of feels that way. Remember, Solomon told us that God makes all things beautiful in its time. When something is happening, it might not feel beautiful to us, might not look beautiful, but it is because it's part of God's plan. He may bring discomfort to his children, but he never harms them. He never harms them. For those who tremble before him and who are precious to him, he does work all things. Even in an upside-down world, he works all things for their good. This last week was <clears throat> Pastor Tim Keller's funeral. He was a pastor for a number of years at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. He died in May at the age of 72 of pancreatic cancer. And at his funeral, he actually beforehand selected all the hymns for everyone to sing. And he actually gave reasons for why these hymns would be sung. He chose that the hymn Immortal, Invisible would be sung. Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, which very much fits our third point here this morning. It's what Josh pointed out to us at the beginning of the service. God is the all-wise one. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. And Keller said he chose that hymn for this reason. He said this. He was writing this <clears throat> as they were at the hospital for cancer. He said, we're here at a cancer hospital. And sometimes you want to say, God, what in the world are you up to? What's wrong with you? And the last line in this hymn is this, "'Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee." Keller said, there's a tendency for us to think that there is some darkness in God. And we're smart instead of saying, well, wait a minute, no. He's more light than we can handle. And the darkness is in us. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. You don't have to raise your hand this morning. But how many of you sometimes feel like, I know God's good. I know he's sovereign. I know he's got his purposes. But there are some things I don't understand. And there might be just a tiny bit, tiny bit of something unappealing about him. There might be a tiny bit of something wrong with what he's doing. Just a little bit of darkness. The scriptures and this hymn tell us only the splendor of light hides him. The stuff that you cannot see and cannot know is not dark one bit. 
It's only light. It's only good. It's only the opposite of badness for us. It's only the splendor of light that hides him. Friend, this world is upside down. But you can bank on the fact that God is good for his people. Let's pray. Father, help our hearts to believe what our heads know that you are only good for your people. You make sense of today. You know what you're doing. You will judge the wicked. You will bring us home, those who revere you. And yet in this topsy-turvy world, you've also given us the ability to bring wisdom and help to it to a certain degree. So Father, what you've taught us this morning, I'm asking you to help our hearts embrace. And now as we sing this last song and partake of your table, may we remember your goodness to us and how praiseworthy you are to privilege to know you as children, Father. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.